winding down, coming back together. It's good. Great to see you guys. Yeah, hey, morning. Welcome, everyone. Really so glad you're here, and Merry Christmas. Go ahead and grab a Bible, would you, and open up to Mark chapter 15, verse 40. That's where we're going to be. If you, have a Bi- or if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There are some of the seats in front of you, so feel free to grab one. The print is small, so hopefully you have glasses or something of the sort. Or if you have your own Bible, that works, or a phone, you can pull up the Bible app. However you want to follow along, we are picking up where we left off last week in Mark 15, where we're wrapping up our series in the Gospel of Mark. And I will say that I've been fighting off something this week, a little sick, and so most weeks I can handle the heckling from the crowd, the booze during the sermon, looking at this section over here. But today, if you could just keep that to a minimum, that'd be great, all right? We... Uh, But really, hey, this morning, this is it, people. We are uh, wrapping up the last section of the Gospel of Mark. We have been in this series for almost a year and a half, kind of off and on. We took a few breaks, but uh, we've been in it for about 45 Sundays. So 45 roughly different messages have come from the Gospel of Mark as we have worked our way through. And this morning is the last passage, and so I hope that excuse me, through this study, you've grown to to love Jesus more, to be more committed to following him on the way of discipleship. You know, as we're looking at the end of the gospel of Mark and the end of Jesus' life, we're also, this time of year, looking at the beginning of Jesus' earthly life, right? The first Advent, Christmas time we celebrate as we've had these candles each week, kind of lighting another one each Sunday representing this season of Advent, which uh, is a word that just means coming. So we're uh, with longing and with expectation looking to the coming of Christ, uh, His first coming at Christmas. And of course, we look ahead to His return one day with great hope and expectation. And so I hope that in this season, uh, it's been a rich time, right? As we've been thinking about uh, the death of Jesus and what that means and the birth of Jesus and what that means and kind of everything in between. It's been a lot, but I hope that it's been an encouragement to you. Uh, let's, let's pray together one more time as we uh, prepare to jump into the Word, shall we? <clears throat> Father, we are truly grateful to be here this morning together uh, to sing to you, to worship you, in that way, to, Lord, be just uh, interacting with each other in community. Uh, what a gift that is, Lord. And now we just ask for your uh, grace and your help as we come to your word. Lord, help us to understand what we read. Would you, by your spirit, uh, open our eyes? Would you teach us? Would you help us to be comforted where we need to be comforted and Help us to be truly challenged and convicted where uh, challenge and, and conviction is appropriate. Lord, we just pray that you would have your way in our hearts. Uh, we give you this time uh, with great joy. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, okay, we're in Mark 15, and if you've been following along with us for some time, then you know that where we are right now is a rather discouraging dark moment in the story 
of the Gospels and in the, move, the Jesus movement. Things are not going particularly well. Okay, This is the part of the story, like in It's a Wonderful Life, when George Bailey's business partner loses the money and he's out wandering the streets. It's cold tonight. He's wondering about taking his own life, right? A very dark moment. This is like in Titanic, the ship is sinking, okay? It's going down. Things are not looking good. This is like in Gladiator. When, yeah, come on, when Russell Crowe, right, he's at, towards the end of the movie, you think he's going to escape, and all his pals are like buying time, fighting off the bad guy so he can escape, and he gets out and he finds his horse, but then it's a trap, and he's arrested, and he goes to, uh, back to jail and so on, right, a dark moment. This is like in Downton Abbey when... <coughs> Just kidding. I have not seen Downton Abbey. I got your hopes up. No, I have nothing against it. I just haven't seen it. But you get the point. A, a dark, challenging, discouraging moment in the story. Things are not going well at all, right? Think about Mark 15. Where are we? What's happened? Jesus, the, the Messiah, the King of Israel, the one that we hoped would establish the kingdom of God on earth and put an end to evil and injustice in the world and save us from our sins and so on, uh, he has actually been arrested and executed on a Roman cross as a criminal, and he's dead. Right? That's where we are in Mark 15. And that's where we pick up in verse 40, right after he's died. It says this, some women, it says, were watching from a distance, and among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. And so, as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. And so Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene <clears throat> and Mary, the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. All right, so chapter 15 again ends on a rather dark note. Jesus is dead in his tomb. The stone is rolled over the entrance to seal him there, and we'll unpack all of what this means. But notice first with me, as we've seen before, these, these women mentioned in the text that are leading by example while the men around Jesus are failing. And so, gentlemen, I'm sorry, we, once again, we don't look very good in the text, okay? We, we, just, we don't. It's, it's the women, Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, it says, and Salome and various others, verse 40 and 41, are talking about were, were faithful. They were watching what was going on. They were present, there, while all the male disciples have fled and ran away. And so Scripture, again, gives us this picture that we should notice, giving us reason to, to celebrate 
women, to, to lift up women who are following Jesus. And so, again, any, any rhetoric in our midst that would demean women or minimize the place of women in the kingdom of God has no place in the church, and has no place in the gospel. So ladies of FBC, just want to see this again. We, we need you and your gifts and your passion for the Lord and your initiative and your wisdom and your skills. And so please hear that, that the kingdom of God does not go forth with one gender alone, but men and women together serving God. And so I hope that this text is an encouragement to the women here and to all of us to, to celebrate women. But we should understand that culturally speaking, these details would paint the Jesus movement in a kind of a bad light at the time. Okay, Here's what I mean. Verse 41 says, In Galilee, these women who had followed him and cared for his needs, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and then many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. And so women uh, traveling with Jesus in Galilee and then making the trip of discipleship uh, for Passover with Jesus to Jerusalem, that would not be culturally appropriate. That would be very strange for these women disciples to be kind of like following along with the boys. You know, that just wasn't something that happened in first century Jewish culture. And so Jesus already was kind of pushing the bounds a little bit and the assumptions of what was allowed. And so some would already have reason to uh, suspect the Jesus movement as something that was kind of shady. I mean, they're letting women follow around. And now you see Jesus is dead and all uh, the male disciples are gone, the ones that society or culture would respect or uh, look to. And, and all that's left are the women, right? At the time, this would look like defeat. This would look like failure. This would look like scandal and embarrassment. <clears throat> so Jesus is dead. The Jews wouldn't want a body hanging out in the open as the Sabbath is approaching, and so someone's going to need to bury him. And so we would expect it would be, what, a faithful disciple of Jesus that would honor him and put his body in a tomb. But what do we see in verse 43? We see it's Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, the member uh, of the Sanhedrin. This was the group, uh, the Jewish leaders that executed Jesus, that, that handed him over, condemned him to death. So Joseph of Arimathea is a member of that council, and I guess in some way is sensitive or more willing to believe in the message of Jesus because he takes a considerable risk here, going to the Romans, going to Pilate, saying, hey, can I have Jesus' body so I can give him a proper burial? I mean, that would be a little risky. He's associating himself with this crucified Jesus, this criminal, and so would that kind of paint him in a bad light? We're not really sure, but again, it leaves us wondering, where, where are the disciples? Why aren't they the ones honoring Jesus and his death and taking care of his body. Oh, wait, they, they ran away. Right? We already saw that. So verse 46 continues. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen. Again, he's preparing it for burial, placed it in a tomb cut out of rock, and then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So Jesus is dead. In his tomb, it's 
sealed with this heavy stone over the entrance. And again, it just feels like game over for us, game over for the disciples, game over for the Jesus movement. And just to rub it in a little bit more, chapter 16 starts this way in verse 1, if you notice. It says, when the Sabbath was over, uh, we see the women again, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, uh, bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body to prepare the body for burial. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Okay, did you catch that? It'd be easy for us to just kind of read over that little dialogue. Who will roll the stone away? The women are on their way with the spices and they're kind of just wondering out loud, man, there's this heavy stone up ahead. Who's, who's going to roll that out of the way? It's almost as if they're kind of a little jab at the disciples in the text, right? Like if, if only we had this strong group of maybe 12 or 11 uh, men here that could like help us roll this stone away. But oh wait, they're nowhere to be found. They ran away. So like, who's, I don't know who's going to open the stone. Hopefully we, we don't know. We'll see what happens. And so again, just another note of shame, another note of where are the disciples who are supposed to be committed to, to Jesus? And we've, we've seen this for a while now, right? If you've been here consecutive weeks, you've probably noticed for the past few months especially, it's uh, message after message has been a pretty unflattering picture of the disciples. We agree. It's been pretty unflattering. I mean, probably one word that captures the life of a disciple these past few months in the gospel of Mark has been failure. Just failure over and over again, right? They deny Jesus. They don't understand Jesus. They run away. Sometimes they're naked when they run away, right? Remember that week? They're, they're chopping ears off. They're fleeing. They're nowhere to be seen. They're falling asleep when they should be awake, right? Just over and over again, and it's, it's challenging because we see in their failure a picture of our own failure, right? Each week we've kind of gone there where, where they are a mirror for, for us to see our own hearts, our own shortcomings, our own failures, and so it's been kind of a discouraging thing on display each week, and it's been kind of hard up here just preaching that week after week. I'm kind of surprised that you all are still here and that you keep coming because it's been like week after week having to tell like a new mom that her baby is ugly, you know, where it's just like, I'm sorry, but like this is just the truth here and I just need to present it to you, right? But it's uncomfortable and it's offensive and you're like, what are you saying to me? And so, but that's, that's where the text has, has led us, like this is just the human condition. This is, this is who we are, who you are, who, who I am, that we have to kind of come to terms with. We're incompetent. We, we're fearful. We fall short. We embarrass ourselves. Uh, and so as unflattering as that picture is of, of humanity, if you will, uh, hopefully we can see uh, that it's, it's true, that we can relate with that reality, right? As much as we want, like, our story to be one of, of victory and success, and we just win all the time, and we're moving up into the right nonstop, if we're honest, we just, we look at our lives, and we realize that's not the way it goes. 
right? Life is hard, and so we more relate with failure, with unmet expectations, with unfulfilled longings. This is true in general, as we just deal with life that is hard. We deal with loss, we deal with grief, we deal with health issues and financial issues and problems at work and being laid off and stress within our families and things aren't going the way that they should, right? And so hard things happen to us, but we're not just victims of a hard and challenging life, victims of a a challenging sinful world. We also realize that we're perpetrators too, right? Like we contribute to the brokenness and the sin in the world. So it's not just that hard things are happening to us, but Hard things are happening and coming into the world through us and by us, right? We uh, hurt the people that we love. We let our family down. We say things that we regret. We make bad decisions. And even as disciples of Jesus, we look at our lives, right, and we realize that they're not always what we wish they were. You know, we don't make time for the Lord uh, the way that we hope we would. We don't open up the Bible and spend time with God. We, don't, we, we rush through our days and then we realize, man, I didn't even pause to acknowledge God or spend any time in prayer. Man, instead of saying something or uh, sharing my faith or talking about Jesus, I was, I was fearful and so I kept quiet. And so, again, there's all these different ways where we as disciples of Jesus fail and are discouraged and can be uh, rather challenging to walk this road of discipleship. And this is true even, again, even, even as a pastor, so I want you to know that uh, that's a challenge for me as well. There are times where I look at my life and realize, wow, Lord, I'm not uh, living fully the way that I think that I should. And I'm preaching about the kingdom of God and obedience to Jesus as our king. And sometimes my life doesn't always reflect that. I'm, I'm fearful or I have regrets or I say things that, I, you ever been in a, just a conversation? I can't tell you how many times I'm in a conversation and afterwards I'm like, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> or or I, wish, I wish I would have said that, right? And it comes to you later and you're like, why, why didn't I say that? Why was I afraid? Why didn't I speak up? Or just this, this week, just to give you an example, um, Amber and I, you know, it's Christmas time, so we're all buying gifts and presents. And Amber is the one in the family, my wife, who is way better at buying Christmas gifts. Like she's just, she dials it in. She hits it out of the park. It's like really fun for her. And so I was kind of sick this week and I'm not naturally as like mindful to be a really good gift buyer. And that's just sometimes take, you know, harder for me. And so she like was taking the initiative. It was like getting gifts and uh, hitting it out of the park, buying things for people. And like, here, yeah. And so she was like reporting back, like, hey, here's what I got for like our family. Here's what I got for our friends. Here's what's, you know, it's from us to them. But like, We'll just put your name on it, too, because we're married, and that's going to be good. <laughs> and she doesn't know I'm sharing this. Um, but, it, again, she's the hero here. I'm the bad guy. Um, <clears throat> so she's, she reports back, here's the things that I bought, and, and here's my response. She kind of, again, I'm kind of grumpy. I'm kind of not feeling good, but I'm, I'm listening. And, and my reaction is essentially, wow, it sounds like you kind of spent a lot of money. <laughs> and... She didn't like that. <laughs> but really, I was like, afterwards, I, you know, I apologized. And, uh, but I thought, like, why was that my initial reaction? It was just kind of be grumpy and, like, instead of being grateful to all the 
thought she had put into that, all the work that she had done to, to help us to care for people in our lives. And I just kind of sat back and just was grumpy and selfish and just kind of wanted to like poke a hole in it. You know, I was just ungrateful and yeah, well, what about this? And I was just, it's like, why? Why was that where my heart was? You know, have you ever had moments like that where you look back and like, why did, why did I say that? Why was I selfish? Lord, why wasn't I more grateful? Why didn't I reflect you more in that moment? Right? So I think we can, we can relate. And, that, and that's why the Gospel of Mark, this book, has been so good for my soul, as I've read through, and hopefully good for your soul, that you can just see that as we follow Jesus, there's failure, and it's going to be hard. It's going to feel like losing a lot of the time. It's going to be messy and confusing. We don't always feel like we get it right, and yet we're on the journey, right? And yet Jesus is there with us, strengthening us, giving us grace to continue and walk with him. And that's where, thankfully, the story turns because there's, there's more to the story than just failure, right? Verse, verse 4 now, chapter 16. Uh, the women are on the way to the tomb, and it says, When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. And don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So the women arrive. The entrance to the tomb is open. This is something they were not expecting. There's a man there we believe to be an, an angel delivering this, this message of hope, these, these words that, that truly change history as he says, you're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified, but what he has risen. He's, he's not here. See the place where they laid him? I mean, imagine being those women. Imagine the shock. I mean, you thought it was game over. Jesus is dead. Disciples have run away. And yet uh, you hear this message that, that changes the story completely. Jesus has risen from dead. He's, he's alive. He's not here anymore. I mean, this, this is Easter Sunday. This is the Easter message. Jesus is alive. He rose from the grave. Here we are two days away from Christmas, but we're having some Easter in here this morning. Jesus is alive. And if we remember, if you've been following along in the book of Mark, you've seen that he's told his disciples this was coming. Multiple times he predicted this, hey, I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders and they're going to hand me over to the Gentiles and they're going to uh, reject me and kill me. But on the third day, I will rise. Right? He said that multiple times. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. I'm going to die. And, and no one understood. They, they were like, what are you talking about, Jesus? But, but here... It happens, and he shows that he's keeping his promises. He's fulfilling his word. And so now all the, all the shame, all the suffering, all of his, his death is now reversed and transformed into his victory as he rises over sin and death and the grave. He's validated his claims to be the Messiah, to be this king that he claimed to be, and not just some dead Jewish rabbi back in the first century, but the living, reigning king of the universe. 
it's this event, the, the resurrection, that transformed everything and became really the central focus of Christian preaching as the gospel went out from these first disciples into the world as the church grew. It was this message that his followers proclaimed over and over again with renewed boldness that this Jesus is alive. He is who he says he is, and we continue to proclaim that message today in, in 2018, that Jesus is alive. Now, we, of course, hear that, and we think, well, that's a rather spectacular claim. Uh, you know, dead people stay dead, and so how are we, as, you know, modern uh, folk, to believe in such a story, right? It's, it's rather uh, unbelievable. It's rather hard to get our minds around. And so we have to figure out, okay, this is what uh, the Bible and his early disciples were claiming happened. They're saying this is what we saw. We experienced the risen Jesus talking to us. Here's everything that we experienced. And so we have a choice. We have to figure out what are we going to do with that. And we have a couple options. The first option, we could uh, believe the message and laying my cards on the table. That's kind of where I'm coming from. Just <laughs> surprise, you know. Uh, believe that this is true that it actually did happen this way. Uh, but, but some say, no, 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 that's, that's, that's you know, too hard to believe. That's just too strange. That's too mystical. So I don't think things like that happen. And so you're like, okay, well, how do we make sense then of the claims of history and these events back in the first century? And so some people will say, well, maybe, maybe the disciples just made it up. You know, they, like, they were discouraged, but they wanted to write a good story. They wanted to put a, a nice ending to it. And so they didn't really see Jesus alive again but they just said that they did, you know, so that they could get fame or glory or something. But, but most people who, who actually, like, study this and, like, read into it are like, well, that, that doesn't make really much sense <laughs> at all because most of them went <clears throat> uh, to their death, right, proclaiming this message, dying because of their claim of to seeing the risen Jesus. And so, I mean, plenty of people will die for something that they believe in, but most of us probably wouldn't want to die for something that we know is a lie. Right? You want to make up something and then hold that going to your death when you could simply reverse it and still live. So that seems rather unlikely. And if they were making it up, there's all these points in the story where we're like, wouldn't you write it differently if you were making it up? Again, uh, women as the first witnesses culturally, that, that wouldn't hold a lot of weight. And so if you were really wanting to make up a believable story, wouldn't you just, wouldn't you change that, make it maybe men who saw him alive at first, men at the empty tomb, or um, if you were writing this as the disciples, you're making it up, wouldn't you maybe paint yourself in a little better light, you know, have some like hero moments in there where you look really good, but instead it's just like, again, really embarrassing over and over again for the disciples, and so again, if you were making it up, don't you think it'd be a little different? So most people are like, yeah, that's not a very convincing alternative, and so uh, what a lot of scholars will do is they'll say, okay, well, maybe it was like a myth. You know, it, they didn't know that they were making it up, uh, but it was like something over decades and generations. It just kind of snowballed. You know, maybe someone had like a mystical experience with Jesus after he died, and they kind of shared that, and then like a couple generations later, it changed from like a mystical spiritual experience to they saw Jesus like bodily raised from the dead, and he like physically was walking around, and that's kind of how it eventually became that. Uh, but again, that's not a very convincing proposal, because if you go like, and look at like, ancient myths and how they develop 
and what they look like. It's like night and day between those and the gospel accounts of the resurrection. I mean, we're talking about eyewitness testimony circulating from the lifetime of the disciples. Okay, so usually myths take like generations, decades, maybe centuries to develop. But here within the lifetime of the disciples, it's going around. In, in the earliest writings that we have from the Christian movement, they're saying, no, Jesus, like he was a lot, like he was bodily walking around. He talked to us. We like, we saw, we touched his hands. He was, he was there. You know, so that's not the way that myths develop. And so uh, really, if, go read about it. Like, I encourage you, if, if there are doubts, which I'm not saying there shouldn't be doubts. I get that this is a, a big claim, but I encourage you to go, go study it. Go look at uh, the myths of the ancient world and look at kind of the historical accounts of the gospels and, and the events uh, of the resurrection. And it's, it's rather striking how different they are. <clears throat> so, I think the most probable conclusion is that the events that are recorded here actually happened as they are depicted. And again, if you have questions, come talk to me. We'd love to chat more with you about this. We'd love to explore this more with you. But from there, we, we could talk for a long time about, okay, let's say this did happen. Uh, what does it mean? You know, what are the implications of the resurrection? Jesus is alive again? Okay, cool. But like, what, what does that mean? What does that mean for the world? What does that mean for eternity? What does that mean for us? And so we could talk about how God is redeeming his fallen world. He's bringing new life into the world and, and recreating that which was broken. Or we could talk about how we now can experience new life, right? We can go from spiritual death to spiritual life. If we believe in Jesus, we'll be raised up with him, both now and forever. And we could unpack all of that. But uh, you notice that's not really where the text goes, right? The story, Mark doesn't give us that. He tells us Jesus is alive, but then he doesn't go on to say, and hey, let me you know, explain to you all the implications of that and theologically you know, what that means. And not that that would be a bad conversation to have. We see it elsewhere in Scripture. We should be thinking about that. But, but here in the text, that's, that's not where he goes. And so maybe on your drive home, that's a conversation you guys can have. Just, hey, Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, so what? You know, <laughs> what does that mean? Talk about it on your drive. That's a homework assignment there. But for now, where does Mark leave us? Right, where does the text leave us? Verse 7, this invitation. Go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Okay, so, so Mark leaves us with these failing, floundering disciples of Jesus with a message, an invitation. Go tell the disciples, Jesus is alive. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him just as he told you. And so you see, this is, it's an invitation. Jesus is alive. He, he's invited you to Galilee. Go, you're going to see him. The Jesus story continues. There's more work to do. The kingdom of God is still at work in and through Jesus. And notice verse 7. Who gets highlighted? It's our friend Peter. Right? Could it, he could have just said, hey, go tell the disciples. And that would have certainly included Peter. But he, he mentions Peter specifically. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Why do you think he mentions Peter specifically? Why do you think Peter is singled out by name? Because he has failed so clearly, so visibly, 
Right? He's the one denying Jesus three times, denying that he even knows Jesus, breaking down, weeping because of how he has failed Jesus. He's crashed and burned, and, and all the world knows about it. And so what's, what's God saying? He's saying, even, even you, Peter, have an invitation. Gather up the disciples, and yeah, you, you, Peter, come on, you can come too, Peter, come along, come on. I know you're embarrassed, but come along too. Right, this is for you. Even you. So this is a word of, of hope, right? A word to, to anyone, anywhere, no matter how bad we have failed, no matter how public our shame has been, the invitation is there. The risen Jesus says, I'm going ahead of you to Galilee. Come and follow me. You're going to see me there. There's grace for you as well. Let's begin again. This is a new start. Let's get back on the road. Let's get back on the journey of discipleship. Here we go. This is good news. Because the message of the gospel is that, what? That God saves sinners. That God heals those who are broken. He gives life to those who are dead. He finds those who are lost. And so our failures, like Peter are not something that somehow exclude us from the grace of God, but actually recognizing our sin and our failures, that's a prerequisite to experiencing the grace of God. Because we see over and over again in the scriptures that God provides for us what we can't provide for ourselves. And so the message is not just, hey, go be better, like get energized and excited and go try harder Get it right this time or else. That's, that's not the message. The message is Jesus is alive. He invites you to follow him. And then in his strength, we follow, right? He enables us. He gives us his spirit, the rest of the scriptures tell us. He fills us with his presence, his power, in order to live this new life. And so we're not just doing it in our own strength, but we're doing it in the strength that God alone provides us. Now, there's one more verse in the gospel. You know, it's verse 8. We haven't looked at yet. It says this, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So not exactly an exclamation part, an exclamation point on the end of the book, right? Trembling, bewildered, they didn't say anything to anybody because they were afraid. Kind of makes you scratch your head, like, what? <laughs> Why? Is that the way it ends? Now, that raises two questions real quickly. The first is, well, what about verse 9 and on, right? See in your Bible, continues, and maybe that section has like italics or um, it's in brackets. Maybe a little note, a little footnote says like, this section was not originally a part of the gospel. See that? Yep. Um, the earliest manuscripts that we have of the gospel of Mark don't include verses 9 and on. Okay, so the most reliable early sources we have of the Gospel of Mark don't include that section, which has led most scholars, I think, rightly to agree that that section is uh, an add-on of sorts, an addition that at some point a little later someone kind of wrote in. And we, we don't know if it's true or not, like the events that it tells, maybe they happened, maybe they didn't. It doesn't really contradict anything else that we've seen, but most people say, yeah, that probably wasn't original to the Gospel of Mark. Now, 
To some, that might be troubling. Like, oh no, like, are people adding on to the Bible? Like, what does this mean? Uh, but I hope that it actually is a good sign, like an encouraging thing, that we seriously have so many manuscripts, so many early versions of the Gospel of Mark and the rest of the New Testament, that we can tell, like, here are the ones that line up, here are the ones that, that show us what was written, and, and here are the ones that are kind of outliers or have, like, little adjustments or things like that. Like, the scholar, scholarly work on this is seriously incredible, where, where we can, with incredible precision, see what the original text actually said. And so the fact that we can point to this and be like, yeah, like we know what the original said and this is probably not it, that should give us actually great confidence in the reliability of the documents that we have because we have so much evidence that we can kind of say, hey, yeah, here's what the original, like we said, with a high, high level of certainty. If you have questions on that, come talk to me afterwards. More could be said, but I hope that that's an encouragement to you. Uh, but the second question this raises, though, is, is this. Why in the world did Mark end the book this way? If verse 8 is the end, like, why? Couldn't you have given us a you know, bit better of an ending? Like, the women went out boldly and told the world about Jesus and, and you know, lived happily ever after or so on. But no, they were trembling and bewildered and afraid, and they said nothing to anyone. And obviously, we know this is only temporary because... They eventually, the other Gospels tell us they did eventually go and tell the disciples, and the message of the Gospel did spread, and the church did spread. And so it didn't stay here, and the audience who was reading the Gospel of Mark knew about that. They knew that that's what uh, would go on to take place. But so why would Mark leave us here? Why wouldn't he include that part of it? Most people who study this, I think they're right, think that this is a pretty intentional choice by Mark, not uncommon in the ancient world to end a story like this quite abruptly with maybe a bit of irony, a bit of confusion. Mark's done this to us before, but what this does is it forces us, the readers, the audience, to step in to the void, right? We see that the story is incomplete. And so the followers of Jesus reading it have a choice then. How will we respond? Will we continue the story? Will we carry on the message of the gospel? Will we respond to the risen Jesus and follow him as he leads us forward, even if we failed before? He doesn't tie a bow on it for us. He doesn't leave us with a complete ending because the story is still being written. The story of Jesus and the kingdom of God is still taking place, and each of us have to choose whether or not we will respond, right? Whether we'll respond personally with faith and trust in Jesus for forgiveness of our sins and new life in him and reconciliation with the God who made us and the God who loves us. And, and if we've already made that choice and we are walking with Jesus, we consider ourselves Christians and we serve him and him alone, uh, then, okay, Lord, how do I more reflect your rule and your reign in my life? Right? You are my king, and so does my life reflect that? You know, are, there, are there steps I need to take to, to follow you passionately and obediently? So we think about things like, have I, have I been baptized? Right? If I put my faith in Jesus, have I made that uh, public? Have I 
been obedient to his call to be baptized. Or, okay, I'm here. Yes, I'm walking with you, Jesus, but I, I'm not in community like you call me to be. So should I join a small group? Or do you need to be more committed to encourage other people as they follow Jesus and be a part of, of the church in a bigger way? Or do I need to serve, Lord? I have, I have resources. I have uh, gifts. I have skills and abilities. How, how can I use them for you and for your purposes? Or how can I go intentionally into my, my neighborhood, into my workplace, and, and bring uh, the hope of the gospel and, and love my neighbors sacrificially and, and talk about you, Jesus? Or maybe you just need to take that initial step to talk to someone right? You, you've heard about Jesus. Uh, maybe friends have told you about Jesus, but you've never really considered what that would look like for you. And so maybe the first step is just to ask some questions. Like, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Like, what, what's that all about? Or what, is, what could this mean for me? I'd love to talk with you. I'm sure someone you came with would love to talk with you about that. But as we close this morning, I'm going to give us a, a brief opportunity to respond. We're going to do something a little different than we normally do. It's not going to be too scary. Don't worry. But what I'm going to do is, is in just a minute, not yet, but in just a minute, I'm going to ask you, um, if you would like to respond to the invitation to follow Jesus, whether that's for the first time or if you have been walking with Jesus for a number of years and you just want to reaffirm, yep, I'm in. I'm on the journey of discipleship. I want to respond to his invitation. Then I'm going to ask you to, in just a minute, just to stand up where you are. Okay. No one's going to come over and hug you or sign you up for uh, a subscription to some kitchen knives or anything like that. Just, you'll be able to stand up. And, and the reason we're doing this because it's just a way to, to actively respond, right? To, rather than me being like, Jesus is alive and we're going to follow him and will you respond? And then people just being... You know, it, it gives us a chance to like actually stand up and say, I'm in, and then I would just I want to pray for, for those who stand. And so again, now, now could be the time. Do you want to stand up uh, for anyone who, again, for the first time, or just if you've been walking with Jesus for years and years, and you're a Christian, and you want to say, yep, I'm on the journey. Here we go. Would you join me in standing now so I can pray for you? Again, not just for the first time, but anyone who's saying, yes, Jesus, you are alive. I've heard your voice. I'm in. Let's go. All right. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we, uh, we are your people, and uh, we're standing now uh, actively ready to, to follow you. Jesus, we, we believe in what your word says, that you are alive, that you are, are ruling and reigning even now. And Lord, we are ready for the work that you have in front of us. And so we just pray for your strength, for your boldness, for your spirit to guide us, to represent you in this world with great love, love for you, love for all people that we come across. Lord, send us out as your committed disciples. We love you. We celebrate you, and in your name we pray. Amen. At this time, the offering plates are going to come by. So if you filled out the connection card, you can go ahead and drop that in there. If you're visiting today, please don't feel an obligation to put anything in the offering plate. That's an act of worship that we do here at FBC once you've called this place your home.
I have decided. I called out his name. I'm following Jesus now, and he knows the way. I made up my mind. I'll leave it behind. No turning back. No turning back. I'm moving on, not looking back. I'm giving him all that I have. No turning back, no turning back. Though I may wander, I am not lost. So many distractions, but I, I look to the cross. I made up my mind. I'll leave it behind, no turning back, no turning back. I'm moving on, not looking back. I'm giving him all that I have, no turning back, no turning back. You want to come with me? He loves you the same. Oh, won't you come with me? Just call out his name. Are you ready, church? Say, I have decided, I have decided to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus. Say, I have decided. I'm following Jesus, following Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. I'm moving on, not looking back. I'm giving him all that I have, no turning back, no turning back, no turning back, no turning back. I'm moving on, not looking back. I'm giving him all that I have. No turning back, no turning back. All right, church, have a seat for just a second. We've been working on a little something special to close out our Advent season here. So we've got a choir put together. We've got some brass instruments this morning. And we have my friend Judy Padilla over there who's going to be singing this song. It has 